0: Two of you are like me. So, we are at the end of the story that the Bible tells us in the present tense. Meaning that uh, the, the Bible, again, is a story that's, that starts in Genesis and it makes its way through a number of years of history. And we just finished up the book of Acts, which is the end of the story that the writers tell us from the present tense. And then after that, we have a handful of pieces of correspondence written uh, by some of the church leaders to little pockets of believers that were scattered all over the known world at that time. And then we have the book of Revelation, which is which is part of the story, but it's not written in the present tense. It's part of the story that hasn't happened yet, that is uh, still ahead of us in part. So what we're going to do uh, for the next little while is we're going to just take some snapshots of a few of these items of correspondence between uh, these, the, the leaders of this new movement this new group of people that had uh, pledged themselves to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow the example of Jesus, to place their faith in Jesus. Uh, We're gonna take some time and uh, look at some of those items of correspondence. But this is what I wanna do first. Just in case you've lost track, I wanna do a quick review of the last few thousand years leading up to the book of Acts, okay? I'm gonna do the short review. I realize it took us almost four years to get here. I'm gonna do the shorter than four year review. So you guys remember how this all started. God made Adam and Eve. Remember that part? I know it's been a while. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and everything was amazing. God made the world, it was good, everything in it was good, and he said to Adam and Eve, I've made this for you to enjoy, I've made this for you to take ownership of, and I've given you this crazy capacity, you can make more of you. And as you make more of you, you will establish uh, ownership over the earth that I've created for you. However... Uh, Within this arrangement, there is an opt-out, there's an exit ramp, there is a a way to escape all of this abundance of goodness. Uh, God said, uh, in the day that you eat of this tree, um, you will go from only knowing and experiencing my goodness to knowing good and evil. However, I want to make one thing really clear right at the outset. I have a future plan for evil. There's an endgame. I'm going to permanently, totally get rid of it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to kill it. So, Uh, it's up to you. Adam and Eve, of course, they're deceived by the serpent. They eat of the tree. And God says, well, it was never my intent that you would live forever with the knowledge of good and evil. So he sends them out of the garden. And humankind very quickly said to God, okay, fine. You get out of our garden, right? Uh, we don't want anything to do with you. So God put this plan in motion because he loves us, but he's committed to the ultimate destruction of evil, right? And you need to understand, and this is one of the areas of the gospel I've wrestled with the most, you need to understand that death for the believer is simply this, the removal of sin, all of its effects, and its memory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That, that, that God, in His grace, even in the punishment of death, that that is the pathway to our salvation, right? Well, having severed themselves from God and all of His goodness, uh, humankind embarks on a new endeavor. How do we make this all work in a now a broken world, a world where sin is rampant, an evil world? How do we make this all work without a God? Uh, our situation is very precarious, right? We're very uh, frail, we're vulnerable, and uh, even Earth itself seems at times positioned against us. Well, for the rest of human history. Man has, man has taken two paths to ensure our own survival. One is to, to make ourselves our own gods, right? To say, we don't want any part of you. It's all about us. We're going to make this work for ourselves. And the alternative is religion. That is, what do I need to give to God or provide to God to, to convince God to provide for me the things that I don't have the power to secure for myself. In fact, I would argue that all religion of every expression throughout human history is people in a broken, fallen, dangerous world attempting to secure from some higher power a certain set of benefits or outcomes. And how do I do that? By providing that God or those gods, whatever it is that they need, I grew up in the Philippines, and the Philippines is predominantly, like vast majority of Filipinos, um, are Roman Catholic. I realize within Roman Catholicism there is quite a spectrum, right? Quite a range of of. Uh, expressions of that, but I remember one of the things that stood out to me, even as a young child, is that for them, there is, for many, there is kind of a superstition that was brought into their Catholic faith, and for every issue, you prayed to a different name, right? So if you wanted safe travels, you prayed to the patron saint of safe travels, and if you wanted your business to go well, there was someone else you prayed to. If you wanted your child born healthy, there was someone else that you prayed to. This is what, this is what we've done. We, we've taken our precarious state and either rejected God entirely and said, we're doing this on their own, or we've created very elaborate plans and systems of trying to appease these gods. God's because they have a power that we don't, and we need their help. Well, today, the first item of correspondence that we're going to jump into is the book of Colossians. One of my favorites. And I know that you're not supposed to play favorites with the Bible. But I do. Now, in Colossae, the city... There would have been lots of options of different gods uh, that you could take sacrifices to for different reasons. Now, I don't actually know all of the different gods' names. So, like, maybe, for example, there would be the temple to Kevin, right? And you would go and you would offer whatever sacrifice the god Kevin needs from you. And and then you would go a little bit further, and there would be a different temple with a different God. And your goal was, if you you cared at all about religion, is just to make sure that you've done your part to make them all happy, right? So this is what Paul is speaking into. Paul is going to drive a sword into man-made religion. So we're going to jump into Colossians. Now, you should know, I'm going to run through some things in chapter 1. I've left a lot of great stuff out of chapter 1. I'm sorry, we don't have time. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. This is Paul speaking to this group who has grown up with idol worship, temple worship, lots of gods, lots of requirements. Colossians one giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints. So let's get one thing out of the way really quickly. Whatever you receive from God, whatever benefits that you think that you have secured from him, God is the one who qualified you to receive those benefits. You did not qualify yourself to receive those benefits. He continues on. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we were over here in the domain of darkness. He put us on the trolley, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul says, let me just get this like out of the way right off the start. Um, God qualified you to receive the blessings that he has provided for you. And God rescued you. You did not, through your own actions, rescue yourself or qualify yourself, so this message that I'm preaching to you is going to seem kind of strange and unfamiliar because it's contrary to human religion. Now, if you're in Colossae and you've grown up, you know, uh, offering whatever you need to offer to all the gods to try to secure their benefits, now you have a question. Who is this god that you're talking about? So Paul begins. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the physical, tangible, real-life representation of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh, a picture of God's character, his heart, his nature. And he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he was begotten before. Before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Oh, and here's another small detail you should know. It was by him that all things were created. Wait a second. You're telling me there's one that made everything? Oh, But let me be more specific. It was by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth. Not just the stuff you see around you, but everything above. And to be even more specific, I'm not just talking about the stars and the sun and the moon. I'm talking about everything that is visible and everything that is invisible. God made all of it. Jesus made all of it. Whether you're talking about thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever God that you have created... Whatever idol that you have constructed, whatever kind of authority you believe them to have, you need to know that there is one God who is over all of that. And here's the kicker. Not only were all things created through him, but they were all created for him. Everything that was created belongs to him. Paul goes on, Jesus is before all things, and it is in him that all things hold together. It is, it is Jesus, the creator of everything. It is through his will, because of his pleasure, that, that I take my next breath, that, that the planets stay in orbit That the universe continues to function as it functions. It is by the will of Jesus Christ that everything is glued together. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Also, you should know, he's the head of the body, the church. The church, of course, is now the physical body of Jesus on earth. He's the beginning. And this is where you can tell Paul's kind of repeating himself. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first guy that went to the grave and came back. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself. To reconcile means to be brought back into his family, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Him, So, just in case you've lost track here, God has invested in Jesus all of the divine fullness so that through Jesus, through the work of Jesus, everyone that was lost to him would be brought back to him and not only brought back to him, but made to be at peace with him. Can you imagine hearing this message and thinking of your, your, your Tuesday morning routine of bringing your, your, your bowl of porridge to whatever God you thought required that bowl of porridge in order to be nice to you, and you're, you're telling me there's one God who's over everything, who owns everything, who made everything, who holds everything together, and who did everything to secure relationship with me? Do, do I not need to continue providing this to secure those benefits? For those of you who have children, have you ever had your kid give you money for a present? I have one dollar, <laughs> which at that point I believe represented probably 50% of the household wealth of that child, right? One dollar bill, that's really generous of you because you only have two, I'm, I'm impressed by your sacrifice. And I won't tell you, of course, that this doesn't change my financial situation in the slightest. (laughs) This will not make the difference of improving my overall financial picture. And yet, uh, I assume that everyone in this room who's in relationship with God, at one point in the last even few days, has wrestled with your inability to adequately provide that one dollar bill that God doesn't need because he owns it all. So four truths really quickly. The first one is just simply this, Jesus is the incomparable God. God. Above all saying that Jesus is the incomparable God is for for us who who follow God is it it's one of those things that well of course, of course. And yet understanding Jesus as the incomparable God is something that we should we we, we ought to even spend more time understanding, right? Of course, we've heard it a thousand times, and we should explore it a thousand times more, that Jesus is not the product of man-made religion. He is the sovereign, eternal one. So Jesus is this incomparable God who made everything, who owns everything, who has qualified us to share in his inheritance, who rescued us from the domain of darkness, who reconciled us to himself, who made peace with us through the blood of his cross. That Jesus, this all-powerful Jesus, guess what? Here's the kicker, is in you. Verse 127, to whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. So he says, I've been preaching this message and this is the message, this is the glory of this message, the, the heart of it, the, the, the brightest part of it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the message, that this, this Jesus has made for himself a temple that was not washed by human effort, but was washed made holy, washed clean by His blood. And that temple is on two feet. That temple goes grocery shopping and drives out to the spit to get ice cream and goes home to make dinner and wash the dishes, as I have made for myself a dwelling place. I have secured for myself a dwelling place that I have made holy through my own work on the cross. Paul says this is something that all of the prophets from from thousands of years prior to the time of Christ were getting glimpses of but didn't fully understand. This God, this Jesus in you, that's your hope. Number three, Jesus is forming his image in you. Verse 28, Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, every woman, every person, complete in Christ. Christ is in you, and because Christ is in you, Christ is shaping you into his likeness. It's an internal work that God does on our behalf. Paul says, my ministry is to partner with Christ in you that you would be formed fully into his likeness, into his character, that you would live out his priorities But it's Jesus forming his image in you. And then, number four, Jesus is empowering his purpose in you. Not only is he shaping your heart and your character, your mind into his likeness, but it is Jesus that empowers your obedience to his calling on your life. Verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Remember verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus, and He is in you. He is forming his image in you. He is empowering your, uh, your partnership with him in his mission. He is the one that, that supplies for you whatever it is that you lack towards those two goals. And so the question then becomes, well, if he has done all of that, How will I, today, choose to enjoy, to walk in, to revel in all of these benefits? Because if you're like me, it takes me about 20 minutes before I revert back to my man-made religion. What am I doing or not doing to get from God what I need from him? Paul says, no, that's not how this works. He has done it all for you. He has provided, he is providing, and he will provide everything that you need to grow into his likeness and into his purpose. And it is upon us to do nothing more than today, right now, on this day, to say yes to him. God, would you give us a supernatural ability from the very bottom of our hearts to say yes to you, to know what it means to be loved, to be washed, to be rescued, to be reconciled, to be at peace. To truly enjoy and rest in what you have secured on our behalf as we follow you.